and welcome to SSI Live. You've long known the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College as the go-to location for issues related to national security and military strategy with an emphasis on geostrategic analysis. SSI conducts strategic research and analysis to support the U.S. Army War College curricula, assist and inform Army, DOD, and U.S. government leadership, and serve as a bridge to the wider strategic community. Now we're bringing you access to SSI analyses, scholars, and guests through this, the SSI Live podcast series. Thanks for joining us. Hello and welcome to this edition of SSI Live. My name is John Denny, and I'm a research professor of National Security Studies here at the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College. It's Wednesday, March 15, 2023, and today's podcast is the third of three SSI Live discussions marking the one-year anniversary of Russia's latest invasion of Ukraine. Two weeks ago, we talked about the Global South and specifically Latin America and the war. Last week, we discussed the EU and the war. And today, I'm joined again by our Russia Brains Trust here at SSI Live, namely Bob Hamilton, Craig Nation, and Steve Blank. Dr. Bob Hamilton is a research professor of Russian and Eurasian studies at SSI. Previously, Bob was a member of the teaching faculty at the Army War College, and prior to that, he was an active duty colonel and a foreign area officer in the Army. He's written on and traveled throughout Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. Dr. Craig Nation is an adjunct faculty member at Dickinson College. Previously, Craig was the director of Russian and Eurasian Studies at the Army War College, where he taught for 21 years. He's also taught at, at Elizabethtown College, the University of Southern California, Johns Hopkins, and Cornell. And Dr. Steve Blank is a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council, a DC-based think tank. Previously, he was a research professor of Russian studies at SSI for over two decades. And before that, he taught at the Air War College in Alabama and at the University of Texas at San Antonio. I've asked these three experts to join us again today to discuss the Russian war against Ukraine one year on. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks, John. All right, let me start by asking, asking you all about Ukraine's outlook. With Ukraine still standing after one year, and with Russia's unfolding springtime offensive showing little sign of success so far, is there reason for Kyiv to be optimistic? Bob, l- let me start with you. What do you think? So, um, first of all, John, thanks for the invite. And uh, it's good to be back with you and also with uh, Steve and Craig, two of my mentors uh, in my my Russia-Eurasia career. So, I guess the short answer to your question is uh, Kyiv can be optimistic if what's happening now around Bakhmut turns out to be the culmination of Russia's offensive capability. Military terms, when we talk culmination, we mean a force is no longer capable of significant offensive operations. So with Russia taking casualties that are reported up to 5,000 a week, um, and the UK Ministry of Defense, the latest estimate I've seen for total casualties on the Russian side is 175 to 200,000 with around 40,000 of those killed, it is, it's possible uh, that Bakhmut will mark the high water mark of, of Russia's offensive uh, ability in Ukraine. In the best case for Ukraine, Russia will culminate around the time Ukraine receives Western equipment, and that will allow Kiev to move on the offensive at a time when Russia uh, is incapable of mounting counterattacks and will struggle even to defend against significant offensive operations from the Ukrainian side. I think we're also seeing, and everyone's watching, this split developing between the Wagner Group, which is doing a lot of the fighting around Bakhmut, and the formal Russian military. That bears watching. 
What we don't know, and this would, I think, temper any optimism uh, a little bit on the part of Ukraine, is we don't know how severe Ukraine's losses are, but we they've got to be significant because the fighting around Bakhmut has been long and grinding and bloody. And even though the Ukrainians are on the defensive, which generally means lower levels of casualties, their, their losses in the war in general and around Bakhmut lately have got to be significant. And Craig, I saw you shaking your head there to something Bob mentioned. Did you disagree with something there? Or what's your sense of, of whether Kiev can be optimistic here? I don't think that the uh, estimates of Russian casualties are reliable. And, um, okay. You think they're too high, too low? What's your sense? They're way too high. In my opinion, I don't know factually, but they don't seem credible to me. They seem to be designed to uh, paint an optimistic picture to keep hope alive that uh, Ukraine has reason to be optimistic. Um, I could be wrong, but that's why I was shaking my head and expressing a little doubt. Well, aside from the the casualty figures, what's your sense of uh, how things have unfolded over this past year, broadly speaking, and again, looking at this spring offensive? Is there reason for further optimism or no? uh, I don't think anybody can be optimistic in, in, if that word has any meaning. I, I, I don't think there's a winning strategy in place on on either side. That's my opinion. Uh, this is, Bob's sort of unfolded the Sirsky strategy, which he outlined this week in a sort of a search of the public. He's the theater commander on the Ukrainian side. Uh, we are holding in uh, uh, Donbass. We're holding in Bakhmut. And we're uh, building for a spring offensive directed at Melitopol. Uh, and that's going to be a winning offensive, which will open the road to Crimea. The road began, the war began in Crimea. I'm just quoting in Ukrainian theater commander. Uh, several days ago, well, the war began in uh, Crimea, and it will end there uh, when we take Crimea by storm. Now, that that is Ukrainian optimism, but uh, now, Bob is shaking his head. <laughs> so, uh, I sort of agree with that as I shake my head this way. Um, <clears throat> I think we're in for a long haul. Steve, where, where do you come down on this? Is there any uh, reason for Kiev to be optimistic here? As Bob and Craig both know, when it comes to Russian things, I'm a congenital skeptic. Uh, but uh, I think there are reasons for Ukraine to be optimistic. I do think that the casualty figures reported for Russia are reasonably, I emphasize the adjective here, reasonably sound. By every indication, Russians are taking an enormous number of casualties. Their offensive performance has been pathetic, to be blunt. Uh, Every critic has noticed this. I mean, after all this enormous expenditure of power, they've gained a few miles at most in the last six months at enormous cost. So I think, as I agree with Bob, They've reached, they're probably at a culminating point in Bakhmut. I don't see that they can go further. I just don't know in advance how successful Ukraine's offensive will be. I would like to see uh, an offensive that opens the door to liberating large parts of Ukraine, maybe Crimea, particularly Crimea, because I do think that if Crimea falls, the war will be, will, will end because the Russian position in Donbass becomes untenable at that point. However, uh, I, I, I just don't know. I don't think anybody knows, to be honest. I mean, we, we don't know how successful Ukraine's offensive will be. Uh, but I don't think the Russians are capable of going any further. 
let me, Steve, let me ask you to unpack that last remark a little bit further. And now for uh, all of us to kind of look at this from the other perspective, that is Moscow's perspective. Are there any significant reasons to view uh, the situation a, a year on now optimistically from Moscow's perspective? I mean, clearly the first 12 months didn't go as as Russia had hoped or expected. Uh, the unfolding spring offensive seems to be sputtering or it's uh, slowed. It's not uh, achieved nearly as much as the Russians would have hoped, I think. But then again, the, the Russian military is has never been, probably will never be, as efficient, right, as maybe Western militaries, the U.S. military, the German military. They do things differently uh, for very, uh, very uh, clear reasons. This is a different culture, different society, different kind of organization. And so we shouldn't expect them to look or behave necessarily like Western militaries. So w- w- with those things in mind, is there reason for Moscow to perceive the state of things right now optimistically? Steve, what do you think? A couple of points. First of all, my criteria is not efficiency. It's effectiveness. And that's the key. Uh, they haven't been effective. I mean, efficient, I, I would never expect. But they've not been effective. Nevertheless, Putin has to profess optimism. He has no alternative. If you look, at, if you try to, if you make the effort, and I think Certainly people in our profession should. To look at the war through his eyes, he has no chance, choice but to make this uh, optimism. They are mobilizing another 400,000 men. That was just announced, this, uh, uh, reported today. That to me tells me that it, it, it's not what they have out there right now is not enough. And they think they can bring up another 400,000 men. They have nothing to rely on that, uh, but throwing manpower into the uh, breach. Uh, their tactics are pre-modern if anything. Uh, so from an American point of view, no. From a Russian point of view, Mr. Putin has no choice but to profess optimism that the energy is, uh, card is going to break the European economy and will to fight, that uh, more manpower and destruction of Ukrainian infrastructure will destroy Ukraine and make it impossible fight, that he's going to open a second front in the Balkans. That's what Moldova was all about. He has to believe in that and that they're going to capture Bakhmut and they're going to and the Ukrainians will not be able to advance in their offensive. The key to all this is the degree of success that Ukraine has in its offensive, because like Bob, as we just said, I believe the Russians have reached the limit of their capabilities for the moment. Now, Bob, I saw you agreeing with Steve on the point about effectiveness versus efficiency, Uh, but he took the point of view of Putin, right? He's got to be optimistic, if only for public consumption or maybe elite consumption. But what if you're Gerasimov? What if you're General Gerasimov? Are there reasons for the operational commanders such as him to feel uh, positive about the unfolding direction of this uh, more than a year on now? No, I don't think so. I don't think Russia has any reasonable chance of securing a military victory uh, in terms of its either its initial uh, objectives for Ukraine, which were to topple the government and control the whole country, or even it's scaled back objectives which are which were sort of controlling all of the provinces that it has it has annexed Crimea and then Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson and Zaporizhia. I don't think they have the military capability of of even controlling and holding on to all of those provinces in a way that they could call uh, a military victory. I, I agree with Steve that I think the the new strategic um, the new strategic watchword is Ukraine fatigue on, in the West, right? I think Putin believes he can outlast us, and there's evidence that he's not wrong about that. Is this war gets longer and the cost um, for Ukraine's partners uh, get higher, you could see publics in the West, you're starting to see it here already in the United States, right? People are already starting to question 
the, the cost of our support for Ukraine. So I think that's uh, strategic pa patience uh, and Ukraine fatigue in the West, I think, are the watchwords in Moscow. And that's how, if they are able to secure a victory, that's how it'll come about. If I could circle back to the casualty <laughs> discussion really quickly. So I do think those numbers come out of the UK Ministry of Defense. I do think they're probably pretty accurate for a couple of reasons. One, uh, especially one of the main reasons is my understanding is they also include Wagner Group uh, forces. And Wagner Group has, has sustained some really significant casualties around Bakhmut. So if you take into account Russian conventional forces and the Wagner Group, uh, and also we know the, the way the Russians have been fighting, especially the Wagner Group, with these attacks of mass units of basically poorly trained, poorly equipped, or basically untrained. These are people who've come out of the prisons. Uh, thrown against Ukrainian lines to expose the weak points in the lines. And then those are exploited by much better trained, better equipped and better led Wagner Group forces. But if you take into account that method of fighting, it does result in significantly higher casualties than would be normal. On the Crimea discussion, I don't think the Ukrainians have any intention of a military move into Crimea. Even if they had the capability, I think um, they understand uh, that a military incursion into Crimea would be a red line for the Kremlin in a way that nothing else in this war has been. Craig, let me turn to you on this question of just, just on that last that last point. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Um, about Crimea, because Sierski said very bl bluntly just several days ago, well, our our goal is to retake control of. Crimea and thereby end the war. So why is he saying that if it's impossible? I guess because uh, he's, uh, he's been a beat the drum for continuing the war. This is an alternative. Winning is the alternative to uh, um, bargaining. And uh, there has to be an agenda for winning, even if it's not realistic or not likely to happen. I think that's where we are. A lot of people have lost money betting against Russia, historically. Uh, and, 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 and there is a certain sense in which Russia is now at war. It, John is quite correct that uh, everything went wrong at the outset. What Russia wanted to happen did not happen. They ended up in a, uh, a bogged down and uh, undermanned, but they're, they've taken steps to try to correct those things by building up their armed forces, building up reserves, training reserves, escalating with all these airstrikes and missile strikes, building defenses. I don't think that Karasimov is, is the theater commander. It's, it's sort of even, I think, is the Really, the, he's he, he's, the, he's the guy in charge, and he, he says quite clearly what his intentions are, and he uses the term grinding. We're going to grind the, the, the Ukrainians down. We're inherently stronger. We have the larger population, has larger armed forces. We're better armed. We have a better military industry. West's, Western support has limits, which will soon be reached. Uh, we're, we, we, we can't lose. Uh, and if we keep grinding, eventually we'll get our way. Now, that he may be right when he may be wrong, but I, I don't think it's a, a, a recipe that's going to lead Ukraine to some sort of striking victory that, that that's going to change the, the balance of forces in theater. Steve, you want to jump in? Gerasimov has to profess a belief in victory. I mean, I, it, otherwise he's not doing his job. And also he'd lose it, uh, quite frankly. Uh, so he's got to come out and say these things. I also find it amazing that a theater commander in Ukraine is simply going to get up, gets up there and gives a public interview where he tells the Russians what we're going to do. Uh, I suspect, Craig, that that, I mean, I understand the Ukrainian passion. Believe me, I, I, I deal with a lot of Ukrainians. But I suspect that might have been as much disinformation. I don't think anybody really knows at least, you know, in the unclassified world, where uh, Ukraine's offensive is going to go. 
Although, I mean, obviously there's a lot of talk about Crimea and it, it, emotionally it's it's very satisfying to say it's, the war started here and it's going to end here. But, you know, the three of us have no, or four of us have no particular insight into Ukrainian decision making here. Uh, and I would be careful about that. And as for Gerasimov, yeah, he could say all those things. I mean, he has to say it. And it's, again, through the Russian mentality, they can't afford to lose, as he said. But I think you have to look both at the, at the Russian side and then at the objective reality. I don't see how Russia can win here and, or what they can win. But they cannot go back because they are politically at risk of fa- if, if they go back, their, their careers, if not their lives, are in danger. All right, gentlemen, let me turn to something that just occurred. We've been looking at the last year. I want to look now at something that just occurred yesterday, and that was this collision between a Russian fighter jet and American surveillance drone. Uh, That plus the fact that we can, I think, soon expect to see Western advanced Western tanks flowing into Ukraine and what I suspect will be a continuing unfolding of the Western debate over providing fifth generation fighter jets to Ukraine. All of this speaks to the risk of the conflict expanding. What's your sense of where we are on the in this regard in terms of the war? Uh, the war expanding beyond Ukraine. Is that risk any greater now or or is it less uh, a year in? What's what's your sense? Craig, let me turn to you first. Well, as as, as this Reaper drone incident it's one of many. It's only very more dramatic because the drone was brought down. Uh, but the, we have these incidents all the time and have had them for a long time in the Black Sea and elsewhere. So that these these are, uh, you know, and there, there are, as always, contending versions. The Russians say they didn't touch the drone. We say they clipped it and uh, drove it into the sea. So it's two contending stories that hardly matters, really. And they forced it down, and that's the story. That that is an escalation. That's an aggressive gesture and an escalation. It does, in a sense, reveal which way the wind is blowing. It's blowing in that direction towards more risk, uh, more risk of, in, of other incidents like this. We say our reaction has been, we're not going to stop. This is uh, provocation, but we're not going to draw back because of it. We'll keep on doing what we're doing. That's our position. I'm sure that will be the reality as well. And uh, the Russia will continue to have to manage it and say, you know, if you can shoot down a Chinese air balloon, we can shoot down a surveillance drone. <laughs> it's our good right. And uh, there we are. It's uh, Cold War stuff. Bob, what and, do you think? Is this uh, becoming riskier as the day goes on here? Actually, no, I don't think so. I th- actually think we were at the, the point of highest risk very early in the conflict when neither side was quite sure uh, of the stakes for the other and of the red lines of the other and how the other might respond. So we've gained more information. Uh, both sides have escalated during the conflict. The West has provided more and more capable weapons to Ukraine. Russia has undertaken a you know partial mobilization of 300,000 or so uh, new people and has escalated to strategic bombing and missile strikes on critical infrastructure in Ukraine. Um, but both sides have managed to contain the risk of un- controlled escalation. Uh, I think I think the biggest escalation risk now comes from miscalculation of, of red lines, right? In a case, and this is especially dangerous in a case where I think both sides are under time pressure, both sides are operating with imperfect information, where you could have a 
what seems to be a relatively unimportant uh, incident like this, this Reaper incident uh, escalate. This appeared to uh, occur where there were other forces in the area uh, and the, the, the UAV, the drone was forced down and the Russian aircraft were, uh, were able to, you know, to fly off on their own. And so um, there weren't other air or naval forces in the area that could, could cause an escalation, a sort of a tactical level escal escalation to, to go strategic very quickly. Um, I think we've seen a higher risk tolerance on both sides, uh, but especially from the Russians, right? I mean, Russia has always, I think one of the things we consistently misunderstand about Russia is their tolerance for risk. It's higher than ours and always has been. Um, and I think it's at least since the end of the Cold War. Um, and I think that's because they they can consider themselves to be operating at a disadvantage. And one way to even this, to even level the playing field is to accept more risk and to do things that cause us to sort of to, to back off. Uh, and so that's where I think we are. But I don't think we're at a, at, at a point now of I don't see risk increasing on some sort of linear trajectory, right? I think we're, it's more of a sine wave. It was very high early in the war. Uh, it may be increasing again now, but we've, to this point, managed to find ways to de-escalate when things got serious. Steve, what do you think? I know that uh, there are some uh, in your neck of the woods down in D.C. who have uh, criticized the West and especially this administration in the U.S. for uh, what they see as halting efforts at expanding Ukraine's capabilities, right? The debate over the tanks being the best example. And prior to that, the debate over high Mars and advanced long range rocketry and missiles. But I think the counter argument to that is, you know, that, that this is all said with hindsight, right? We can look back and see the Russians haven't reacted dramatically, at least to high Mars or to tanks. And so is our concern over the potential expansion of this conflict misplaced or not? What do you think? Well, I plead guilty to being one of those people that you just described. <laughs> uh, if you've been reading what I've been writing, this is an escalation. Craig's right. But it's an escalation that should be met. As Craig has pointed out, and as everybody in this business knows, these kinds of incidents are happening all the time, not only in the Black Sea, they happen in the Baltic. Uh, they happen up in the high north, too, uh, sometimes. But ye yesterday's was a particular was an egregious one uh, where they actually struck the, sh the drone. I think it's going to lead one to more or more or more regular uh, reconnaissance flights of this type in the Black Sea. Second, I think that the Russian constant escalation is going to lead the West. And I think this is going to happen reasonably soon to, sense, to start sending fighter aircraft. I don't know about fifth generation, but fighter aircraft to Ukraine. I think that's coming. I also think that, as Bob said, we're dealing, in Putin's case, this is a guy whose KGB application apparently was marked to indicating an excessive tolerance for risk. Um, at least some of the biographies say that. He has to do it, as Bob has said now, uh, and again, because of their efforts to, quote, equalize, and also to prove to themselves that the West is as decadent as they say it is. One of the real problems Western commentary on Russia has had is that they don't realize that Russia has to keep proving to itself and to China, among others, that it is a great military power so that the Chinese will take them on as allies. The term in German is Budnisfeg, worthy of being an ally. And I think a lot of Russian behavior is an attempt to prove both to themselves, uh, sort of like, as I used to tell classes, like the Wicked Queen in Snow White, who's the fairest of them all, but also to the Chinese, 
that they really are the great power they pretend to be. Now, that's, I think, has led them into this war altogether and um, also into these kinds of incidents. And I think it's going to rebound against Russia's interests. Steve, that's a perfect segue to my last question for the three of you, which is the few remaining minutes we have. I want to turn to the question of China's role in this conflict one year on. There's an at least from the American perspective, increasing evidence that Beijing is considering a more direct provision of military assistance to Russia. And so I'm curious to know what your views are on whether and how a more direct Chinese role might affect the war's trajectory over the spring and the summer. Bob, I'm going to turn to you first, and I'll note for our, our listeners that uh, you know, you've got perhaps some special insight into this. You're working on a book project right now that examines the intersection of Russian and Chinese foreign and security policy, uh, not merely in Eurasia, but uh, in other locations around the world. So I'm, I'm eager to get your sense of what this potential partnership looks like uh, over the next few months, and it's specifically in the context of the war in Ukraine. Sure, John. Um, I wouldn't say it gives me special insight. Like any project of this size, uh, the more I research and the more I learn, the more I realize how little I actually know and how, how much more I need to know. But in terms of uh, Chinese support to Russia and Ukraine, I don't see it make, making a big difference on the ground. The three things China, that Russia really needs, which are leaders, mid-level and senior leaders, elite forces, and precision-guided munitions, China's not in a position to provide. It certainly can't provide the leadership. It can't provide the elite forces like the VDV and the Spetsnaz, the Airborne and the Special Forces, which were decimated early in the conflict and are going to take years to regenerate. Right? These are the type of forces that you can't put through uh, an eight-week basic training and put on the battlefield. These were elite forces. Same with mid and senior level leaders, the casualty rates for them because of the way the Russian leadership style operates have been very high. Uh, China can do nothing about those things. China can provide, if it chooses to, some precision guided munitions, but again, if the West chooses to, it can provide more and better PGMs, certainly better, maybe not more, it just depends on how much China uh, decides to provide. But certainly the West can provide better precision guided munitions to Ukraine than China can to Russia. So um, I think where Chinese support might matter is it would answer the larger question about the China-Russia relationship, which is, is it an axis of convenience or a true strategic partnership? Because if China provides uh, material support to Russia in Ukraine, it indicates that China is willing to bear costs on Russia's behalf because China would certainly be hit with secondary sanctions by the U.S. and other Western countries. So that would answer uh, a question about the China-Russia relationship or at least provide a clue to an answer that's much bigger than even the war in Ukraine. And it's the nature of the relationship itself. All right, Steve, let me turn to you next. Do you think uh, the Chinese can help the Russians here uh, significantly affect the trajectory of the war? Or do you, you think, like Bob, that the Russian challenges are really so deep in terms of personnel and manpower and leadership that China's uh, manufacturing capability really won't amount to much or won't make that much of a difference in the next year? I think that the effect that the China would have would be fundamentally political and would transform this into a global confrontation. And that, by the way, a Chinese colonel writing in a British publication, was it Rusi or Financial Times, said as much, said the same thing. I, I've just published a bunch of articles on Russia, China, and I believe it's an alliance. I've said so for some time, but it's, it's not an alliance like NATO. And uh, even if it were, uh, you know, we have cases in, in the Western West like Suez, where the junior partner, as in this case, Great Britain, tries to prove it's still a great partner and, and uh, 
had its head handed to it, uh, in this case by the Americans. The Chinese, I think, the fact that they are, were considering giving Russia weapons is indicative of the alliance, as, as is the overall pattern of Sino-Russian military cooperation, which is quite extensive. But I don't think at the end of the day that they're going to give this to uh, Russia because I think they're not prepared to uh, bear the costs of Russia's delusions, uh, which they know are severe if it happens to them. So, uh, but they are still allies. And I mean, this is an interesting point. It's not an axis of convenience. It long ago passed that threshold. And uh, therefore, it's important. But like I say, I mean, the China factor is felt everywhere and seen nowhere in, in, in a certain way. Like I said, I think one of the reasons Russia has been so aggressive is to prove to itself and to China that it really is the great power it says it is. And uh, they have run too many risks. Craig, you get the last word. What's your uh, view on whether and how a more direct Chinese role might affect things? I, I spend every morning over breakfast reading Global Times, so maybe I have a skewed opinion. That's Chinese <laughs> speak. However, I think in a sense, Steve is right. Uh, I, 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 it's not in China's interest to go so far out to limits of supply hard, military hardware to Russia. Uh, however, I do think if you want to be a little critical of our side, uh, our, our policy of NATO enlargement without end has driven Russia into China's arms. And that is a very, it's, the Bobo Law is, is, is old school, man. It, it, it's, it's a tight linkage and uh, it's it reflected in our foreign policy statements which identify both russia and china simultaneously as rivals or enemies or whatever phrase you want to use whether that's a good strategic outcome or not i can't say i i think the only reason only way that these sort of uh, looming possibilities can be realized that is escalation of war outside the boundaries of uh, ukraine itself or a, a, a much more robust uh, NATO uh, uh, engagement in the war itself, or more overt and uh, militarized Chinese support for Russia in the conflict, is uh, is if uh, Russia really begins to move and gain ground and win territory. If there's a, if there is a which is much more likely, I think, happen that way than the other way that Ukraine's going to run over Russia and, and tanks are going to appear on Red Square, the Ukrainian tanks on Red Square. Uh, if that starts to happen, then... If they could, they would have by now. This is a high risk. And I think it's something our policy uh, makers, not just people from Florida who want to be president, uh, should, uh, should think hard about. Craig, I, I appreciate that answer, but you, I must say your comments about uh, the role of NATO enlargement in all this wants me to... Uh, it uh, incentivizes me to keep this podcast going another 20 minutes, but I know we can't do that. Uh, we'll take that up in a, in a future discussion. But for now, gentlemen, let me thank all three of you, Dr. Bob Hamilton, Dr. Craig Nation, and Dr. Steve Blank, for sharing your insights and your knowledge with us. It's been another enlightening discussion. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, John. You can now find SSI Live on TuneIn Radio and on popular podcast directories like Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. If you have any comments on our podcasts, thoughts on what you'd like to see addressed, or a response to something you heard here at SSI Live, please go to our website. That's ssi.armywarcollege.edu. Find me, John Denny, in the staff directory, and send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. For the SSI Live podcast series, I'm John Denny. Thanks for listening.